This conference will now be recorded. Hi, good afternoon and welcome to our session on new issues in lower court appeals. Uh, for those of you who've been around a while, you, you do know we've done this with Commissioner Popko and Commissioner Harris in the past. Uh, this is the first time we've had both of uh, our judge and our commissioner join us. Uh, so um, we're really excited to, to do this. Uh, we do have Judge Daniel Kiley and Commissioner Julie Lefebvre uh, who are on with us. Uh, the materials, as always, are available in Hightail. The uh, um, COJET certificate is the last page. Uh, and if everything works, we're going to do this uh, as um, both a webinar and a uh, podcast if everything works, uh, you know, and hopefully it does. Uh, we have set aside 90 minutes. That's without a break. Uh, if we get all excited, we might be able to go longer. And at that point, we might need a break. Um, but we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, and normally I do uh, it, talk about bios, um, but the very first slide, they have included their bios there. So what, um, Judge Kiley, Commissioner Lefebvre, why don't you uh, talk to us and tell us about yourselves. Sure, and, and apologies if you see my eyes going up, it's because I'm, I'm looking at my own slideshow a little bit bigger uh, as a so I can see it a little bit. I, I thought it was important to start, first of all, and, and Judge Kylie and I both think we want this to be uh, an experience where you, if you have questions, you have the opportunity to ask them. So we want to get through our slides as quickly as possible and then answer any questions that you might have. But we do think it's important to understand sort of who you are dealing with when things come back to you and, and and rulings come back to you and what we know and perhaps even more importantly what we don't know sometimes about um a particular subject matter uh that we are handling so i was appointed to the superior court bench uh, almost it'll be seven years ago this summer as a commissioner prior to that i practiced 15 years almost all uh civil high-end commercial litigation and then i spent six years on a trial court or six years on a uh, criminal bench the first three, probably the closest to what you guys do, so I have at least some understanding, which was on an RCC high volume pre-indictment court. So 100 matters a day, very short, very early on in the process with hopeful early resolution. I then moved to a DUI court bench and tried DUI and other felony matters for about three years. And I think what helped me in that process, at least for purposes of you as an audience, is, of course, almost everything criminal gets appealed. So I have been on your in your position with a court who I thought had more time and energy to devote to particular legal issues than maybe I did at the time of the ruling telling me I was either right or wrong. I never had any ego about that. Either way, I always appreciated that. Um, and when we issue our rulings, they are not to say that you as a person are right or wrong. They are our analysis of the legal issues in front of us. So I think that's helpful to know. Uh, Judge Kiley? Yes, well, thank you for uh, inviting us to be with you today. I'm Dan Kiley. I've been a Superior Court judge since 2010. Uh, over the years, I've been on a family court assignment, a civil assignment, a criminal assignment, 
I've been doing uh, the LCA calendar since November of 2020. My background is primarily as a, a civil litigator, although I did start my career and spend a number of years as a prosecutor as well. So that's us. And then the next slide I like to, to do right away, which is to thank you for what you do. I, again, having been in an RCC court, having been in a high volume court, I know that what you do is really the face of the judiciary for us and for many, many people. Uh, I know that they call our uh, department lower court appeals. I think you will note in all of the rulings that we issue, we don't use that terminology. We call you the trial court because that is what you are. And we really do not assign a lower or inferior type assignment to what you do. You guys are incredibly, for the most part, uh, patient and diligent in explaining to primarily unrepresented litigants uh, what you're doing and how you're doing it. I have watched, I've been on this rotation about a year now, and I have watched in awe many of you handle some very difficult, very emotional matters with either pro se litigants or perhaps even uh, with lawyers with an amazing and extraordinary amount of grace. So thank you so much for all you do. Uh, most of you have the patience of Job, and even on those days when you do not, I have oh, I yet to see. Oh, somebody's mic is on. I have yet to see anyone um, really exhibit anything other than professionalism, even if they were a little bit frustrated, which we all get, and sometimes you mean to convey. So thank you for all that you do. We'll tell you a little bit about what we do, which is our next slide there. We handle appeals from the limited jurisdiction courts. So from you guys, from justice courts, municipal courts in criminal, civil, traffic cases. Uh, we also handle administrative decision uh, appeals. So we handle um, registrar contract actions, board and licensing hearings, things of that nature. So it sort of runs the gamut. We can be working on a, an appeal from a traffic handicap placard in the morning and a doctor getting his license suspended forever in the afternoon. So our range is quite broad. We are not really subject matter experts in all of those things. So we rely on you guys who see these things every day to let us know by way of your rulings what your rulings meant and, and, and what law they relied on. For the most part, I think the most common appeals that, that we see are evictions, order of protections, injunctions against harassment, et cetera, um, collections, and then, of course, traffic cases. Uh, Judge Kylie, is that about accurate for what we see primarily from their jurisdictions? Yes, um, it is. And and just so you know, the uh, in addition to Commissioner Lefebvre and I, we do have a staff attorney here in the LCA division who um, she handles primarily, she primarily prepares drafts in the uh, civil and criminal traffic cases and sometimes the uh, order of protection injunction against harassment cases. She'll work, she'll prepare draft rulings for, for our review in those cases. We've been joined by a few people, so I am gonna repeat the protocol. Uh, you're welcome to leave your camera on or off, but your microphone must be muted unless you're actively asking a question. 
Uh, if you've called in on a phone, uh, you need to mute yourself on your end. If you don't, I'll mute you on my end and you won't be able to ask any questions. Uh, I've heard some noise coming from some of the telephones and so I might just mute them all if you don't mute on your end. Uh, and you can uh, turn on your mic to ask a question or you can put the questions in the chat box. Um, and, and judges, how do, how do you split those up? Do you, do you have a uh, strict, you know, all of these type go to this judge and the other type go to the other or how, how are they split up? No, um, the, uh, as I said, the civil and criminal uh, traffic cases and the uh, sometimes order of protection injunction against harassment will go to the staff attorney for, to prepare a draft ruling for us. But aside from that, we divide up the other cases um, evenly. Basically, however many cases come in in a particular week, they'll just be divided equally. Uh, sometimes the administrative appeal cases can be a little more voluminous, a little more document intensive. So we make sure that we share those uh, so we can both have the fun of that. Um, but basically, we just try to have a, an equal assignment of, of uh, cases. And I think to further answer your question, and, and I, a fairly random assignment. So even though I was on a DUI bench prior to coming to LCA, I do not handle all the DUI matters that come up from your uh, courtrooms. Judge Kylie handles them as well. So we don't, we're not uh, focusing on, I do a particular type of appeals and Judge Kylie does another type. So if we look at the next one, this is sort of a, a, a walking through of what happens to your case when you're done with your case. And um, generally, as you know, the notice of appeal gets filed. The briefs, everything is filed in your court until it's complete and ready to be transmitted to us. And then up it comes in one package. We are still a paper division. We're, I think, the only one left. There may be... Uh, Judge Kylie, are there some in juvenile that are still that way? Although I think that is is quickly changing. Um, so we get the huge stack of what your case was and the relevant information via paper. And then if there are any procedural motions, we start with those to make sure there's not something that that needs to be determined that would decide whether or not the case could even move forward uh, with us. And then excuse me, sometimes you guys handle those, should be handling those, but every now and again, one comes up and it's already been transmitted to us and there's a procedural motion still pending. I think generally our policy has been to rule on those rather than send them back because you've already transmitted it to us. Judge Kylie, maybe you want to speak on that a little bit? Well, yes, if, if there's an, a, a procedural motion is filed at, to determine whether the appeal should go forward or not, such as whether the notice of appeal was timely or uh, whether the opening brief meets the applicable rules, that, that should be transmitted to the superior court. And if, if, if it's transmitted before the, the case is transmitted, then I will rule on the procedural motions. Uh, if a procedural motion comes in while a case is pending, such while a case, after a case has been transmitted to superior court, while it's pending and if it's been assigned, then whichever one of us it's assigned to will deal with the procedural motion. But uh, prior to, um, before the case is fully briefed and transmitted, the procedural motions that come in, motions to dismiss, motions to strike, 
uh, an appellate brief, those will be transmitted to the Superior Court for ruling and I'll deal with those. And every now and again, we'll get a procedural motion. For example, an appellee doesn't file a brief and then it gets transmitted to us when the time to file it has has passed. And then they file some kind of a motion for an extension. And, and usually once we have it, we handle those as well. Uh, oral argument can be requested. It's not a matter of right in any cases other than particular criminal ones. So sometimes people ask for it and we have it and we decide after the oral arguments held, sometimes we use our discretion not to hold those oral arguments. So um, that can delay the 60 days that we have for our decision. We have 60 days from the time it's assigned to issue our rulings. And then some cases, but not all, have further appeals. And I can't remember, to be honest, if I had a slide on that or not. Uh, maybe as we go along. So here's the, uh, the next one shows the notice of appeal that we talked about. So um, in eviction cases, the parties have five days from your final decision to appeal. In all others, they have 14. Um, if the appeal is from a summary judgment motion, a motion to amend the judgment, a motion for a new trial, um, default motions to set aside default, um, then our decision our appeal is limited to your ruling on that motion. It is not an appeal of the entire substance of the case. So if you if you um, granted a summary judgment motion and then the appeal is whether or not you abuse your discretion in granting that motion, or if you denied a motion to set aside a default because someone didn't show up for their hearing, then the appeal is whether or not you should have denied that motion not to go back and redo what you said initially and sometimes that's confusing to litigants although usually not to most of you um those motions need to be filed with and determined by the trial court before they come up to us and if the appeal is filed before those things are determined we will dismiss it for lack of jurisdiction and that has been I think for me, the number one reason to be sending things back to you guys at this time, there's something still out there. There was a motion to set aside file that just did not get ruled on somehow because we understand, especially self-represented litigants, are filing a ton of things. And you tell them after, on the day of your judgment, which is usually from the bench, you can appeal. So they start an appeal, but they also file a motion to set aside a judgment or something of that nature. So. When I get a file, I'm always looking to make sure there is not something still pending. And if it is still pending, and we'll talk about that a little bit back, uh, a little bit later, then I will send it back to you for lack of jurisdiction because obviously we only have jurisdiction over final judgments. Let's see, procedural motions. So I think we already talked about, did you have anything else about that one, Judge Kylie? Well, no, I, there, the, the slide has a little notation, which is really more aimed at, at lawyers and practitioners to, that when they when the parties file a, a procedural motion, they're supposed to make that notation in the caption so that your, your clerk will know that it's to be transmitted to the Superior Court. Sometimes it'll happen that they don't include that. So the case will be fully briefed, the whole file will be transmitted, and then we'll see that there is a procedural motion to dismiss the appeal for untimeliness or something that was never ruled on because the, the litigants didn't 
didn't properly notate it as a procedural motion that that should have been referred to the Superior Court. And in those cases, Judge Kiley, are those also ones that you tend to rule on, or do you remand it back for that decision to the trial court and then no. take well, it back? I'll, rule on the, I'll, I'll definitely rule on the procedural motion. So sometimes even if they were meant to be filed with you, if they slip through and come to us, then we'll rule on them and then move on to the substance of the rulings. Let's see. Okay, also, we, to, just a little warning to the judges. If you uh, haven't transmitted the record yet and you do get a motion to continue uh, the deadline for filing the opening brief, the trial judge cannot rule on that motion. We do have to have a different judge rule on that. And, and also um, for the appeal, as you know, our um, rules do allow, uh, do allow non-attorneys to be representing parties in the initial matter. Um, for example, corporations can be represented by employee, uh, by officers. Uh, but when that is appealed to Superior Court for an appeal, that is no longer the case, correct? Yes, that's correct. Correct. The, um, if, if the notice of appeal itself is filed by an officer or someone who's not a lawyer, that uh, will be considered a defect that can be cured if, if a lawyer appears in the Superior Court case. So the, the filing of the notice of appeal by itself if, if it's filed by a non-attorney, that will not necessarily be an invalid notice of appeal. However, in order to proceed with the appeal at, at the Superior Court, there will need to be an attorney for the corporation. And uh, Judge Kiley, because I know I know you've had some of those, we both have, but what is, how do you usually, if they don't get a lawyer and then they file something and it comes up as a pro se litigant in that case, do you give them more time to go get a lawyer? How do you do that usually? If I have uh, a, a non-attorney trying to represent a corporation, I will let them know that they're not, they're, they're not allowed to represent uh, this entity in a uh, superior court. An entity cannot be, cannot represent itself, must be represented by an attorney, but I will give them more more time to get a lawyer. I'll set a deadline and say by this date, a um, this uh, this corporation, this LLC, whatever, must make arrangements for a, a licensed attorney to file a uh, notice of appearance on its behalf. And if they don't file it by such and such a date, then the, the appeal will be dismissed. Uh, so then we get the uh, appellate uh, memorandum both sides of course can file there's no obligation that the appellee file and i i probably get briefs from both sides 90 percent of the time 85 or 90 percent of the time i think both sides continue to participate um it has to be filed within 60 days the brief has to be filed within 60 days of the notice of appeal deadline not within 60 days of when they file the notice of appeal. So if you issue your order and they file their notice of appeal on the way out of the court, but they had 14 days in order to do that, their brief is actually due after that deadline for when it could have been filed. So they get a few extra days in that respect. Um, 
most common rule eight violations on the memorandum uh, is, oh, excuse me, no, no citations to the record or law. So it's just a, a narrative of what you did wrong and why you didn't like one of the litigants or the other and what I should do about it. That's very common or no citation to the record. Either they didn't get the FTR, they didn't listen to the FTR or they've not yet ordered a transcript. That's fairly common or they're seeking relief outside of what you heard. So we are obviously only charged with looking at what you looked at. And very often somewhere between your court and our court, a lot of extra things either happen or get brought in. So we often have briefs that say, after the judge issued the order, the other guy did X, Y, Z. And obviously we are really limited to what happened in the court proceedings and what you saw. We would never make a ruling um, absent some particular reason to uh, take evidence, which doesn't happen in any of these cases. We would not be making a ruling based on, well, the trial court was right based on what he or she had, but now I have this extra document and now they're wrong. So we look only at what you saw and we only grant that relief. The, the relief that I often see is, and also tell him he's a really, really bad guy or also sanction the lawyer or also give me a million dollars in damages or whatever it is. And of course, we're not able to address any of those things that you didn't see. Uh, again, as we talked with procedural motions, appeals can be dismissed for those rule eight violations more than likely the offending party is given a chance to cure that violation so i think um we're cognizant of our capabilities under rule two which is in the interest of justice we can suspend some of these rules and also at least and, and i'll let judge kylie chime in on this as well I want there to be resolution to these matters. So if I dismiss it for a procedural reason, it doesn't always end. <laughs> and I think the parties, the ones that are really exercising their rights to appeal, if I can figure out what they are asking for and what they meant, we do a lot better, all of us, if we rule on the substance and make, make a ruling on the merits where we can there are some when we simply cannot but where we can i tend to do that I, I don't think i've done a dismissal on a rule eight violation unless i truly could not understand what was being asked judge kiley what's your position on that if if there are, are issues with the brief that they don't cite to the record and and or the, the other things that you've discussed i will give them an opportunity to, to cure the defect. The only defect that we don't overlook, that we can't overlook, is if the notice of appeal is not timely filed. And timely filed and um, can also mean too soon. I know we often talk about too late, but many of my dismissals for lack of jurisdiction is that one of those other motions we talked about wasn't determined yet and I don't have a final judgment. Um, or there's a counterclaim and that hasn't been ruled on yet. So it can actually be filed too soon. They've moved it out of your court before everything's been decided, but it is more common to have them miss those, those dates. Let's see. Transmittal of the record. This is really more administrative, obviously, than for, for each of you. 
the FTR comes up. If it's over 90 minutes, we must have a written transcript. I think that's the number one thing I send back. First thing I do when I get a new assignment, look at the disc, make sure I can read it. Sometimes we can't because our systems don't all talk to each other. Make sure I can read it, hear everyone on it. Make sure it is under 90 minutes long. If it is over 90 minutes long, then I will issue a minute entry directing the appellate to uh, provide a certified written transcript within, I give them 45 days. And if they don't, they, they face a possible dismissal of the case. So we don't listen to FTRs that are uh, in excess of 90 minutes. Oftentimes they come up with records and I, I always feel bad for these people where they've hired their neighbor or someone to type that record, but it is not certified and it is not um, in keeping with the rules that require a certified transcript. So oftentimes I will send it back to get a transcript and then I will get it back from someone who's just sort of typed it up and then I have to send it back again to get the official transcript. And, and frankly, oftentimes those, those get abandoned at that time because it's quite costly, but um, unless it is a certified written transcript. So I know that what they're saying, you said, you really did say, um, we, can't, we can't use them. So that's an issue more with the parties. Um, rule seven, of course, covers what gets sent and allows us to remand things to you for a new trial if we just, cannot determine what you considered. So usually if there's reference to a ruling that you made and it's not in the packet, I, will, I won't remand the whole thing. I will just send a minute entry asking the trial court to uh, transmit to us the judgment of X day or Y day. Usually my assumption is it just didn't come up and it's there somewhere, especially if both parties are referencing it. But if I just cannot figure it out at all, then of course the whole thing has to come back. Or if we can't understand, I've not had one. I've only been a, a year, of course. Judge Kylie, have you had one where you've had to transmit it back because either you just can't read the FTR or hear the FTR or you just don't know what happened? I've had several cases where the uh, recording was of not great quality, but I've uh, asked our technical people to see to do what they can to enhance the audio quality and in, in every case but one they've been able to enhance it enough that I could follow what was being said. There was only one time when there was one witness in particular, the, the, the plaintiff, who was an important witness, that I, I couldn't understand what she was saying and part of the problem I think was that she was wearing a mask and so in that situation because I I couldn't tell what the evidence was that was being presented. I had to um, reverse it. And that was uh, obviously that's not a desirable outcome for, for a number of reasons. But if, if it's simply not, if, if, it, if what the person is saying is simply not discernible, then there's no way uh, for any type of meaningful appellate review. And I think a good rule of thumb for that is if you are struggling to hear a witness and, and, and again, some people have joined since I said it, I know you all do an amazing job, especially when we had COVID and all of these hearings were taking place uh, virtually and it was difficult to get people and to hear people and there was background noise happening. I, I was on criminal during the time and I think I took pleas from broom closets of 
Taco Bells while people were on their uh, work breaks and whatnot. So everyone did the best they can. But if you cannot hear the witness, you can assume that we will not be able to hear either when it comes to us. Um, and sometimes I think there was a, an issue of uh, someone just posted something about a particular mic. Sometimes we can hear you, but we can't hear the witness. I always follow my own sword when I was in criminal and said, and just say to the person without embarrassing them, I've, you know, you're, you're different than I, and that I've never been accused of being uh, soft spoken, but you are a little bit, and I'm going to ask you to speak up, or I'm going to ask you not to also sometimes people get upset and they're talking over one another. As sounds like we might be doing here a little bit. Um, but if they're talking over one another, it does become really, really hard to decipher. So we've all let things go a, a, a sentence or two too long before we take control of the court again. Once you do that, um, it is very, very helpful if you say, okay, I need everyone to take a breath or whatever your strategy is for regaining the composure of everyone. And then sort of go back and either summarize or ask the witness or the lawyer or whoever it is to restart at the point where you feel like people began talking over each other so if that's asking the lawyer to repeat the question or asking the witness to repeat the answer or sort of having a bit of a redo for the last minute or so where people were on top of each other that really helps with us being able to hear um not so much now because people are getting back in person which is great because we can see you but especially when we have just the audio um and people are not identifying themselves it's easy if you have a woman and a man it's not so easy if you have uh, a female lawyer and a female witness and you're not sure sometimes where the question stopped and the answer began so if you can make sure if you have that that you're making sure they are not talking over one another and it's obvious who's giving the answer uh, I also have on this slide, sometimes no judgment is included. And again, most often that's just uh, a failure in it coming up somehow. But every now and again, there's a comment on an FTR record, and then there's not a judgment or the judgment is inconsistent with what was on the record, and we have to deal with that. Also do remember that there are some rulings that you will make that will require specific findings. So just signing off on the the template that says granted may not always be enough if we actually need the why in those cases. So, or you need to make a particular finding. So make sure that you're doing that um, as it, before it comes up. And what, okay. does a judge do, what does a judge do if they've signed a judgment, it's been appealed and then a request for attorney's fees comes in? Judge Kylie? I think that unless unless the judgment has been entered pursuant to rule, uh, if, um, well, the equivalent, unless it's been a partial summary judgment under the equivalent of rule 54B, I don't think the trial court has uh, jurisdiction. So I think the trial court would need to, to hold off on that um, and, and while the case is pending on appeal. And 
And I think it to that end, one thing to remember is that we have jurisdictions one court at a time. So we have it or you have it, um, but very rarely should you still be ruling on something if it's been transmitted to us or should we still be as we often do we will issue a ruling remand it back to you and then continue to get filings from the litigant in our division uh for which i will usually issue a mini entry or two saying i no longer have jurisdiction this has been remanded back to um the trial court Sometimes it, I've remanded it to the trial court and they have filed something with the Court of Appeals. And so I then say it's somewhere, but it's no longer with me. Once I remand it, it is back to you. And we we want not to be both issuing orders um, at the same time, unless there are separate issues. I know there are some of those with the writs of restitution that had come up and and, th and bonds and things like that, that, that continue on in your courts as we are dealing with the substance of the judgment. Uh, anything else on that? Well, if there's if there has been no signed judgment entered and a party files a notice of appeal, then that the notice of appeal in that instance is a nullity. So you, you don't have to to stop what you're doing and send the case to the to the, the appellate court. Um, if there's if there's no signed judgment, if it's simply a, a ruling that the that the party is unhappy with and they file a notice of appeal because of it. Um, I would see that often, well, not often, but sometimes when I was on a civil assignment, sometimes I would make a ruling on a motion, but nope, I didn't enter any signed judgment. The party would file a notice of appeal and I would issue a, a one sentence minute entry saying, I got this notice of appeal, there's been no final judgment, it's a nullity and I'm gonna proceed. Just to make sure that everyone knew I, I've seen this, it's not that I'm unaware of it, but that it, it has no legal effect because no, no signed judgment has been entered. And uh, obviously it has to be that way um, to avoid a situation where a litigant who may be acting in bad faith is filing notices of appeal when there's no final judgment just as a way of interfering with the uh, your ability to resolve the case. So a notice of appeal when, when there is no signed judgment entered um, is a nullity and it doesn't have doesn't require you to transmit the case to the court of to the superior court so we can tell you that however if there is a a signed judgment uh, unless you reserve the issue of attorney's fees um, then i think once the judgment is signed and on appeal then the the trial court loses jurisdiction until it's been remanded and with respect to the judgment and the attorney's fees issue i see this on both sides of the aisle for example you'll issue your judgment orally at the end of the argument and you'll allow the party to submit the proposed order and attorney's fees request and the unhappy litigant will appeal on their way out the courtroom before that has been done um i also have seen the um prevailing party submit right there in court the judgment along with the request for attorney's fees and seen that granted immediately, there is a provision for which a litigant may contest attorney's fees. So you can't, you can't do that one-stop shopping. 
they have to be given the opportunity to contest the attorney's fees with the China doll affidavit and whatnot. So we, I have often seen, um, especially in eviction proceedings where the, the lawyer for the landlord who does this all the time will approach the bench with both the judgment and the amount and it will include the attorney's fees and it will include whatnot. Um, those need to be held until there's a response if it is the type of matter in which the litigant is entitled to object to those fees in any way. Um, I know they're breach of contract actions, but they still have the opportunity to respond to those. So some of those just need to be held. It's just a matter of timing. It, it makes sense to, to me as a general rule, at least, to resolve all of the issues, including any claims for attorney's fees and costs and enter one final signed judgment at the end of the case. But you do have the option under Rule 139B of the Justice Court Rules of Civil Procedure to enter a partial judgment as to some claims and not all. And that might be a, if for some reason you wanted to enter a judgment on the merits but reserve the, the attorney's fees issue, that would be a way to do that, to enter a, judge, a partial judgment under Rule 139B. Um, okay, and I see things coming on the chat. I'm not able to read and respond to them. So Charles, we'll just let you, if there's something that, a question or something coming up that way, you could uh, wave us down or turn on your mic and, and read it to us maybe. Oral argument. Again, I, as I mentioned, it's discretionary in most uh, let, cases. Let, let's give Charles a chance. Is, is there anything in the chat that we should respond to? Oh yeah, thank you. Well, there, there's a thank you um, to uh, the judges for, uh, we have a retired lower court appeals judge who would write really long decisions and then indicate that the errors were harmless and, and basically that that didn't promote confidence um, in the in the lower court judges. Um, so thank you for not doing that. <laughs> well, and, and I guess that is in part why we tell you who we are and who you're dealing with. Um, First of all, I think it's important. I think I do a better job on this rotation, having been on a trial court bench and having been appealed over and over and over and gotten to read people uh, very kindly telling me I was right and wrong and very unkindly telling me I was right and wrong. Um, and I don't mind either way, of course, but I try, especially knowing that most of our rulings are going to pro se litigants to use what my mother always called real words and not lawyer words. So in most of my rulings i certainly will reference the law reference what you did you will find that i very rarely will call you by i never will call you by name i even very rarely unless it's necessary will give you a pronoun um you will be it you will be the trial court because when we the purpose of our robes right is that we are the court and not personal. So when I send something back to you or disagree with you, it is not you personally. It is that I think the court sitting there in that moment, which could have been any of us, uh, made an error of some sort. So I we I do try and Dan can or Judge Kylie can tell you a little bit about his style, but to write in ways that hopefully end it for us and for you, so the litigant understands why they we're successful or we're not. So you understand what it is you need to do on remand. Um, the worst thing in the world to me would be to send a, a ruling down and then you need clarity on what I said. So we, we try to, to do that in real words. Um, 
with citations that are appropriate, but not just bogging down people to the point they have to pull the strings out, out just to make the, the sentences. So I know I've endeavored to do that. I, I think Judge Kylie does as well. Do you have anything else on that? But I do appreciate the comment because uh, sometimes we get bogged down in interesting legal issues and we get, as I've been accused of, um, we get a little too lawyery and that's not really helpful for anyone. Well, I, I try to be sure to to address in some way all of the ar arguments that the appellant raises or that the parties raise so that they know that they were heard, that we considered what they had to say and that I had a, if I'm rejecting what they're saying, I have a reason for doing so. But I also think that our, our role is to resolve what needs to be resolved for the case to, to go forward and not to go out of my way to discuss un issues that aren't necessary for the resolution of the case. Um, oh, was there something else? I think I heard someone chiming in. Okay. Um, oral argument, again, discretionary for the most part, um, required in certain criminal matters. So rule 11 says may order. And then in the criminal, um, counterpart says shall order on certain things, civil traffic cases, even if the ARS statute violation is criminal, they are not, uh, we are not obligated to have oral argument. And I think for justice courts, unless I think there's going to be something really helpful, I, I don't always order it. If there's a legal issue I really want to hear about or am unsure about or think that oral argument can add, I, I certainly will set it. I tend to reserve those more for the administrative reviews where I, I really have not seen or heard of a particular aspect of law. But I'm very aware of the fact that regardless of what the case law says about you can't raise a new issue at oral argument and we won't consider it. If a litigant happens to raise a new issue at oral argument, even if, if in your brain you're discounting it, then I need to either add to my ruling that I know you said all of this, but I can't consider it, it's new, um, or do something to make sure they understand the universe for which we live in. So I, I tend to schedule it if I believe it is helpful, but not in every case just because it's asked for. Judge Kylie. Well, I schedule it in criminal cases when it's requested because I have to, but I um, otherwise um, I'll, I'll read the briefs and if, I, if there are some areas that I think need clarification, I'll set it. And if not, I won't, whether it's requested or not. So I think we're, we're about the same on, on that issue. Decisions, obviously, then we either reverse and remand in whole or in part back to you or we affirm, but either way, we still remand it back to you uh, for anything else that might be pending. Let's see. Oh. Okay. And uh, Judge Kylie, what type of cases get further appealed where the buck does not actually stop with us? Well, leaving aside the administrative appeals, which can right. go to court appeals, it's cases where the uh, the validity of a statute on its face is being challenged. Right. And so that that is really for you guys the only one that uh, that would get further appealed. So the next slide I have, and I know it's a little small. Most of these cases are just for you to have 
um, to cite to, to understand where our thinking is coming from. Um, but what helps us? Uh, having a really clear record is always helpful. Um, I absolutely love when some of you do the uh, my kid's fifth grade teacher kind of thing at the end, which is, okay, here I go with my ruling. <laughs> and the, I know it's coming, the party know it's coming. And then really to make sure that after that, stop. And, and I don't mean just you stop, but stop the discussion, stop the talk, stop. Because every now and again, someone issues a really clear ruling and then the party says this isn't fair because of whatnot and then the court asks the other side another question and next thing you know i'm not sure what the ruling is anymore um so just the clearest record and just an ability to say this is the ruling and now we're done um and again remember that we are looking to uphold your decisions not because we like you although we do but because that is the legal standard um so if you tell us what your discretion was and that goes to the next one most of these are abusive discretion with some uh differences with mostly the criminal stuff but if you tell me what discretion you used how you used it and it makes sense then uh, you are more likely to be upheld on appeal because I'm looking at whether or not you abused your discretion and I can see that you didn't. Uh, we are supposed to look for that and look to uphold those decisions even if we would have done it differently, even if we would have gone the other way. And there I have issued some uh, rulings in the last year where I think I would have made a different call but the call that you made was appropriate and legally supported. It's not our job to go back and re, you know, start the game over, right? We are looking at whether there was a, a reason for what you did, and if what you did is supported in the record, then that it that will stay on appeal. Um, again, there at the bottom, uh, and this is this is probably the one that's been the most difficult for me in the last year. We need a final judgment to be appealable. So what I've seen quite a few of is uh, eviction action counterclaims. There is a very narrow provision for which uh, tenants may file a counterclaim. And a lot of them seem to know that. So if they file a counterclaim and they allege a statutory violation, whether it has any legal merit or not, you need to address it. Because if you don't address it, then the counterclaim in theory is still pending. And the part of your judgment that that requires under the law that the amount awarded offset by any damages the tenant had, if that discussion hasn't happened, even if it is to dismiss the counterclaim because they say it's a statutory violation, but they didn't give notice. So uh, most often in Arizona, what I see is, I know I didn't pay him rent, but my AC is broken. Okay, well, there are requirements for what you have to have done to notice your landlord about your AC, and you don't just get to file a counterclaim saying my house was inhabitable, even though I'm still living in it through this summer. Um, 
but if they filed it, you need to have that discussion with them on the record and you need to rule on that counterclaim so that what comes up to us is a determination of the complaint and the counterclaim, whether that's a dismissal, whether that's an offset, but you can't just ignore that because I end up sending them back because they're not final because it's possible that the judgment amount, maybe not the eviction itself, but the judgment amount may have been offset by some counterclaim if it had some validity. But again, I don't make that determination. So that that's when we just have to be uh, cautious about and not obviously in every case can you just counterclaim, but if it's a statutory violation, then they can. And that's generally what they do. Um, also, once the file is transmitted to us, um, we usually need to be ruling one court at a time. So I have seen where litigants are filed, they filed an appeal and it's been transmitted to us and they're continuing to file things in your court and you're continuing to rule on them. Uh, and that can be complicating because it the case still has a life of its own at your division level and I'm working on it at mine and we run the risk of some conflicting uh, rulings or that you end up sort of litigating out or settling out the very issue that is on appeal. So we need to make sure once you've ruled on a motion, once it's been transmitted, unless it is a, a separate issue, a separate case that we're not both ruling on them. And I'll take these other two, uh, Judge Kylie, and then maybe you can add motions to vacate defaults, motions to set aside judgments again, and I'm actually working on one today. You need to substantively rule on that because those appeals come up to us, not for the judgment itself, but for whether or not the litigant raised an appropriate reason to set aside the judgment. So the, the biggest one, of course, is a default. And they filed a motion with you saying, I didn't appear because the you know bus ran late or I didn't have notice or whatever it was. I can't make those factual determinations. That's something that the trial court needs to do. So you need to make sure that you're, I have a substantive ruling on that because oftentimes the litigant will just appeal your decision and not, that's not the proper legal standard because I, I end up saying, I can't look at whether the decision, the, for example, granting the summary judgment or the default was proper. What I have to look at is whether you went back to the trial court and gave uh, the trial court a reason for why you got defaulted and, and should have a do-over or a new hearing or whatnot. So I need you need to make sure that you're ruling on those. I have seen of late, and I don't know, I'm open to hearing how you're handling those, where someone will file a motion to set aside and a notice of appeal at the same time and just sort of keep running on both uh, tracks, but you, you need to rule on that motion to set aside because if they file a motion to set aside your judgment and then they file a substantive appeal to me, that's not what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the decision you're about to make on the motion to set aside, which I don't have yet. Um, again, and I think Judge Kylie talked about this a little bit, attorney's fees and other things that might bifurcate judgments. Just remember, we get it when it is complete and final unless you have bifurcated a bid out and sent, for example, the substance to us, but not the fees. Any questions on that or comments on that, Judge Kylie? 
No. <laughs> and then I think this one is is a, a, an attorney's fee example from you. The next one. Oh, yes. This is something that I would see often when I was on a civil assignment, and now I'm seeing it again as I'm uh, looking at um, civil cases that come up from uh, from justice courts where the parties will submit redacted billing records. Now, a, a party that's claiming fees has the burden of convincing the judge that their uh, fees are reasonable. And in order to do that, they have to show that the, the fees were necessary to the to the case that the, the lawyers spent a reasonable amount of time performing those services and that the hourly rates reasonable if they won't tell the judge what it was that they did then they the judge has no way of knowing whether it was reasonable or not so fees for any redacted time entries have to be disallowed um, and i i would see this a lot and uh, when i was on civil and the lawyers would tell me well that's privileged well First of all, uh, not everything that goes on a billing record is privileged. In fact, as a general rule, it's only the substance of the communications between the lawyer and the client that are privileged. Um, much of what's on a, a, a billing record is information that couldn't possibly be considered privileged, such, such as uh, a lawyer attending a court hearing. Well, obviously there's nothing privileged about that. Um, but even if one were to take the position that uh, billing records from an attorney are privileged, that the client still has to make a decision if they're if they're not willing to present the evidence that they need to win their to to be awarded the fees they claim then they're not going to get their fee award they have to come forward with evidence to show that they reasonably incurred fees that were necessary for the case um, and if they choose not to disclose that information because they claim the privilege then they haven't met their burden of proof. So they haven't met their burden of showing that they're that they're entitled to the fee award that they seek. It, it's it's no different from medical records in a personal injury case. If if a plaintiff is seeking to recover for injuries and they want uh, they have to to come forward with evidence to prove their injuries, to prove the medical treatment that they received for those injuries, so they need to come forward with medical records or the testimony of the treating physician or both. And if a plaintiff were to come in and say, well, I'm claiming X amount, but I'm not gonna show you my medical records. You're not gonna hear from my doctor because that's privileged. Well, then the plaintiff hasn't met the plaintiff's burden of proof and the plaintiff doesn't win the case. And it's no different with, from, with attorney's fees. If you want to win it, you want to uh, obtain a fee award, you have to show what it was that your lawyer did and uh, convince the judge that those fees were reasonably incurred. And if you don't, you haven't met your burden of proof. So I, I think any fees that are requested or time entries that are redacted uh, have to be disallowed because the plaintiff has, has not, or the requesting party has not provided evidence to you that you need to make the determination of reasonableness. And having submitted tons of these as a practicing lawyer, it's difficult for me to think about anything that happens after the ray is not necessarily privilege. If I'm talking to my client about trial strategy or about the testimony of the witness or about the judge's ruling, that doesn't disclose anything that is privilege. I, it, 
the case is over now in theory with the fees. Um, I suppose that maybe isn't true sometimes with summary judgments or other things um, done in the middle, but it you're hard pressed, I think, to convince me that you would do anything so secretive and maybe it's just a matter of training at some of the lawyer level as to how they put their entries in. Um, we're not saying we have to know every word you said and they maybe don't want to say, you know, talk to our client about what an idiot this judge is, but they can certainly say, talk to our client about, you know, trial court's position on uh, or appellate court's position on this issue. And I, I don't see any privilege in that at all. Um, and so I agree with, with Judge Kylie on those. And this one, this example isn't even half as bad as some that I've seen. Sometimes they just say teleconference. Okay, with your mom, I, I can't, I can't give you fees for that. I have to know what they're for. Well, and I've seen um, literally a billing statement that says, you know, fees eight hundred dollars or whatever, with no description of the services performed at all. And the, the the lawyer told the told the judge, well, that's that's between me and my client. Well, not if you want the judge to award fees. It's not. You have to give the judge evidence to support a fee award. And even if it is a flat fee, I know a lot of people are doing flat fee billing, and there's uh, some value in that. But if the client pays twenty five hundred dollars for the attorney to draft and file a some type of motion, and it prevails. Uh, they still need to be demarking because they're still, we still have to determine whether that's reasonable. Just because the client agreed to pay it doesn't mean it's all recoverable. If you file a motion that takes you 20 minutes to write and the other side never responds and you submit a fee app saying it's $2,500 because that's what my client said they would pay, uh, that may or may not be uh, the the market value, so to speak, but we still have to do the assessment of whether or not it is. So we still have to know even on a flat fee. And I think most, um, for example, Judge Kelly's example, most personal injury attorneys that I knew, even though they are most often contingency keep billing records, just like lawyers who are sending a bill every month so that they can justify the amount of work they've done and how much it took. Now, I don't know if, if you've had this, but when I was on a civil assignment, it would sometimes happen that a, a, a lawyer would tell me, well, I'll, I'll submit my billing records to you for in-camera review so you can look at them privately and make a determination of reasonableness, but I, I don't want to disclose them to the other side. Again, you, the other side's entitled to see any evidence that is being presented to the judge, and they're entitled to respond, they're entitled to point out that a particular time entry was not reasonable, it's an excessive amount of time, it wasn't necessary to the case or, or what have you. So the idea of a, of a in-camera submission to the judge is not a, a viable substitute for disclosing or submitting the billing records and, and allowing the other party to see and respond to those records before the judge makes a decision about whether the fees requested are reasonable. And lawyers do have a lot of latitude with respect to what they charge and what their clients are willing to pay and what is standard market but I, I do remember when i was in practice having a federal case where we had dueling multi-million dollar fee apps against each other because i think we won five of the claims and 
the other side won four and it was millions of dollars. And, and in looking through that, I often saw five and six lawyers billing for the same task for a very minute. And so in our response, I cut and pasted all of those and said, okay, judge, I know they're a big firm and they charge lots of money and that's all well and good, but it is not possible or efficient or appropriate that 17 lawyers have billed to prep this very minute witness for a deposition that never took place or whatever it was. Um, and some of those were stricken and frankly, in the objection, the response that we got from a, a very um, ethical law firm as well was we are withdrawing those. They don't always see what's going on in, in, in every individual billing record. They don't often see it. So uh, m much of that was withdrawn and the judge never had to rule on that. He did, for the record, say a curse on both your houses and award nobody anything and told us both to go away. So, which may well have been the right answer. <laughs> Are, are there any comments in the chat that we should uh, address? Well, I, I just made a comment uh, that, you know, we do have that uh, form for when we reduce attorney's fees and we may need to add a category for redacted entries. Okay, yeah, that's uh, as a reason for why it's been being reduced. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, a few slides back was help us and said, here's how you can help us. And then, so our next question, of course, is help you. But before I, I added a few slides, as uh, um, Charles had mentioned, that there were some questions about interest issues. So I think that might be one help you sort of category. And then I promise we'll get back to what can we do to, to uh, make your jobs a little easier to this extent it's appropriate. Um, and I'm going to go through these slides fairly quickly. Again, I, I put a lot of law into them so that you can use them as a primer and you can go back. And I think they will have these slides, yes, or be able to access them somehow. Uh, they already have them and they can access them, yes. Okay, so great. So thank you very much for doing that. Um, what can I do about interest issues? The reality is less than you might like less than you might like, and here is why. Um, if I can get to it. Um, interest rates are primarily governed by statute or contract. They are not governed by us. And so what we see often in the interest, just because of the nature of the cases you guys are handling, are these really huge interest rates, short-term loan interest rates, um, just prohibitive type interest rates where someone has gone and gotten a car and they're 30% interest. And it's the type of interest rate that gives us all heartburn and says, how could that be possible? But the reality is, is as anybody who's lived here for a few years, if you remember those short-term loan interest rates being fought about years ago and legislated, um, is that we, especially here in Arizona, value people's right to contract. And while we may view charging 26% on a $100 loan per week or whatever it is, if you really need that $100 and you are willing to enter into a contract by which that is the term, it is difficult for us to find a reason under the law not to allow for it. And so we have to be 
careful about being paternalistic in the fact that we maybe wish it was better or feel sorry for the parties, but we really do respect their right to contract. So in short, interest rates are 10% unless otherwise contracted for in writing, and then they may be any amount agreed upon within some limits, and I have those on the next couple of slides, but you, you see there the statute, um, and let's see, we can kind of go through these a little bit more quickly. As I said, I just wanted to give you a, something to go on. Consumer lending, finance companies that we see a lot of, motor vehicle title loans. These are the sorts of things that pawnbrokers, people charge really prohibitive interests on. The reason they charge that from just a, a practical perspective is they have a lot of defaults and their collection rate is low. So in, in the real world, are they collecting interest from client A because client B defaulted and they're taking a risk? And so they're charging the ones that might pay more to make up for the ones that don't? Probably, um, more than likely. And whether or not that's appropriate, um, it's the law. And if they're not allowed to do that, they're not going to be in that business and the very clients that are suffering under those rates are not going to get that money and we are just not in the position to say but well, geez you really shouldn't take in that hundred dollars at that rate sure but it really was their right to contract so just look at those and you'll have some guidance on that um and again the next couple of slides i think are just to help with any guidance on that and then I have a, a heading that says, maybe I could try. So if you really want to see if there is some law that allows you to change an interest rate, um, and I'm sorry, I'm on 22. If I went too far, let me know. Oh, here, let me back up. So, and also, and then 21 says, again, it, it seems outrageous, but the parties have agreed to this and we have to trust that whatever they thought that was worth, that was worth. So the maybe I could try is I really, really think this is awful. There is some case law that suggests if the outcome is absurd, then perhaps there is a way to say that the interest rate's absurd. I would be cautious in citing this myself. So I suppose maybe I would um, suggest the same caution because the reality is um, the legislature has explicitly repealed interest rate ceilings in most of the types of cases that you've seen. So when you talk about absurdity, you're going to butt heads with the legislature and the law. And of course, the default is that the law is the best uh, and the statute is the best suggestion that something is fair and appropriate. So. Uh, it, it is difficult to disallow that. And there's some case law there to talk about um, uh, whether or not you could try. And again, the but at the end is our law generally presumes uh, that private parties are best able to determine their contract terms that serve their interests at the time. So uh, let me make an observation and then Commissioner Lefebvre, you can tell me if you agree. It, it seems to me that under some circumstances, under the facts of a particular case, it could be determined that a particular contract provision is unconscionable 
but that relates that that has to be determined on a case by case basis, not as a matter of oh I have a policy that I never enforce these uh, in any cases under any circumstances. That's that's not what unconscionability is. That requires a, a case by case determination. Right, and again, the difficulty there is um, it's the the party who's now aggrieved on the interest got the benefit of that contract um and and so you can certainly make that case by case determination but that most definitely needs to be made on your record uh, in your case so what we if if you've just marked through what the interest rate is because the prevailing party has set it at the amount the contract permitted and written in something new because you think it's unconscionable, but you've made no finding of it, I don't have anything to review. I just have the statute that says you this must be. Um, so you can make that argument, but you you need to that's one that you're gonna have to make a very very particular finding because you are you are saying essentially I'm I'm letting part of this contract off the hook and applying others. And so you need to to very clearly tell us what that is and give the parties the opportunity to respond to that so when it comes up on a brief that we can make some decision um i wasn't sure and i just added this because when you mentioned charles the issue of interest i wasn't sure if it was that it's prohibitive which i've seen some arguments or just the pre and post judgment concerns. So I added two slides and to extent there was no question about that. You'll just have that information to disregard. But um, pre-judgment issue, uh, pre-judgment interest is on any liquidated claim, but it must be liquidated. So we have to be able to see it, hold it, feel it, touch it. We have to know what it is. If we knew what it was, it came due at this time and the interest was owed, then you're, the litigants entitled to that interest. Um, and it's calculated from the date that we're able to assess what that is. So usually the date the, the debt becomes due and owing or the date that there's a default or whatever it is. Then the post-judgment interest is governed by statute at 10% per annum unless stated otherwise. Sometimes you have both in the contract or or one is mentioned and one isn't so if one is mentioned and one isn't you might be able to do 10 percent per atom thereafter and whatever the contract says about prejudgment or the other way around but you do need and i think i have this on the next uh, slide and uh you do need to put those amounts in separately we often see lawyers submit to you their fee apps with interest at blank and if we don't have the pre and post judgment interest separated out um then there can be issues as to whether or not that was um done correctly or calculated correctly and also um anything that specifies judgment at the legal rate without a notation of what that is and which legal rate applies of course is is not helpful to us i saw a comment go by but i didn't i wasn't able to read it is there something the and and one of our, our judges does raise the issue of um where the creditor waits say five years to file allowing the pre-judgment interest rate uh to accrue uh 
and uh, so they're actually getting the benefit of their inaction. Well, and I think that is the litigant will defend that they were not on notice that the debt was owed and perhaps it's not liquid at that time or, you know, those are all things that you will deal with and, and force your litigants to litigate there. Once it comes up to us, of course, we, we don't make that determination, but that's a fair point. I have seen more often than not in those cases, and Judge Kylie, you can correct me or, or put in your two cents too, where the say it's a credit card company, and I know there are some issues with that as well, but it's a credit card company and it has a debt and it chased the debtor and then it sold the debt and then that company sold the debt and now we have a third company chasing the debt and it is five years later. And litigants will come and say, well, wait, I filed a bankruptcy and that didn't get discharged because I totally forgot about it or no one sent me a notice or whatnot. Um, and we do get those fairly often. And those are things that you have to, to look at and and perhaps if you made an unconscionability determination there but if they're they're saying we sent you a a statement every month and it showed the interest was accruing and just because we didn't file they'd have to bring a statute of limitations type argument and you would decide that um but we do see those those amounts bouncing around it, it's not usually you owe me this credit card debt that started six months ago. Do you disagree with that, Judge Kiley? Well, I, I think that's a very interesting comment, and I'd like to, to have that question thrown out to the to the group and see what what people think. How how do you handle it in that situation when uh, when you think that a creditor has uh, sat on a claim for too long and and then tries to claim uh, prejudgment interest because they just let the uh, let the debt build up. Is there somebody who wanted to, to speak to that? I, I will tell you, as, as they're all building up their courage to speak to that, what I find more often than not is that those the creditor that ultimately files the suit will agree to waive that prejudgment interest, probably because they're not sure if they can calculate it as well. Um, because it's bumped around or they're not sure what happened before. And so I often see creditors agreeing to waive pre and or post-judgment interest in order to get something uh, by way of a judgment. Judge Williams did pop in. He would like to address that. Sure. I, it's a fairly common fact pattern where someone voluntarily turns their car back in as a voluntary repossession of it, essentially and they don't understand that there's still money owed on the car and a couple years go by and then they get hit with the lawsuit and the judgment and in those situations i i do uh try to talk to the, the plaintiff about maybe some of this isn't valid maybe you know you should have done more to put the defendant on notice the, the problem we have is so many of these are defaults and it, it's hard when you don't have anyone really standing up for the other side and we can't really just write down interest because we don't like it on on a default. So the when when someone's there, it's at least relatively easy and you can at least talk to them at a pretrial conference or something like that. I, I get more and more frustrated when there's a default that there's one lender in my precinct I, I think it's their business plan 
two, loan money to people that can't afford to pay it back, repossess the car, maybe sell that same car two, three times to other people during the same year, and then wait four years <laughs> to ever file on the deficiency judgments on those. And they're easy to, those cases are easy to spot, but it, it's hard when they're, they're default. It, it right. seems to me that in that situation, that if the car, that it may not be a liquid, a, a, a case that's appropriate for prejudgment interest because it's not liquidated. If the vehicle's returned and the, the, the vehicle's presumably sold to someone else, there's a question about what is the debt that's left? It depends on the how much the vehicle was sold for. And so that that may take it out of the realm of being a liquidated debt. It's it's. Um, you have to determine the circumstances under which the vehicle was sold. Was it commercially reasonable, and so forth? So perhaps under in that situation, it would uh, it prejudgment interest would not be available because the, the the claim is not liquidated. Or they failed to mitigate any damages they could have. I mean, if they the cars were if the debt's ten grand, the car's worth five, and they sold it for twenty five hundred. There, of course, is an argument that the uh, litigant is, or the defendant at least gets the 2,500 credit. Um, whether they were upside down to begin with is, is probably a different argument, but certainly credited against whatever recovery the plaintiff might have had. And I do think in those cases, and I, 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 I cited to one of you, I don't know if that person is on or not, uh, very early on, I see a lot of you saying, hey, he's willing to take this. Do you want to go back and talk about this? Do you want to arrange a payment plan? Do you want to try to resolve this? Because people are finding out there's this debt or maybe even judgments against them when they go to buy a house or do something later in life. And they are trying to make good faith efforts to resolve it. And I have seen many of you try to turn your hearings into sort of pseudo settlement conferences or giving people an opportunity to try to talk about those issues. The more you put on that record, the more that we see, the more able we are to determine to the extent you have any discretion, obviously you don't in some of these, um, what you did and, and whether it was appropriate. So my last slide was I said your turn and then gave you about 15 interest slides. Uh, so now it is your turn for real. Are there we, we other do, questions? We do, I'm sorry. A, we do have a question from the other Judge Williams. <laughs> I happen to be the tall, dark, and handsome one, uh, <laughs> just in case you ever have to uh, address that. Uh, one of the things that I see with at least one or two of the regular filers of, uh, of uh, default, what end up being default cases is that they have purchased a portfolio of a variety of cases. They may have 100, 200, 500, 700. They provide that uh, chain uh, in their, their filings as proof of debt. But when they file their judgment documents, when they submit that form of judgment, they choose to use a number of, uh, let's say in this case, 18%. And it is not that 18% is the exact number for that particular case. It's the number that they apply to every case that they bring forward out of that portfolio. And they are also uh, some that I know have filed or at least uh, come back to me asking 
that the pre-judgment interest that they are requesting based on this arbitrary number of 18% be recognized uh, while they don't argue if I lower the uh, post-judgment interest down to 10. But they do want to fight for the 18, but there's no real clarity that that particular exact case within that portfolio had 18% as the amount of the contracted uh, rate, but that everything that they do within that portfolio, they average it or they apply an 18% prejudgment interest. How do you address that? How should we address that? Well, they, they, they cannot just unilaterally pick 18% or some other number that the that the other party to the transaction who is by now the defendant that the defendant never agreed to they 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 need to be able to show what what was the interest rate that that this particular defendant agreed to in the original contract and if they can't do that because the records have changed hands then they don't meet their burden of proof on that okay and so that being said that's how i uh, uh, treat that, but the the question that they are sort of raising in this matter, and, and I and I believe that I've asked for a couple of order to show causes for them to uh, address that issue. That eighteen percent seems to be something they are locked in on, and they are filing motions for reconsideration. Uh, to have them be uh, increased back to eight to ten, excuse me, to eighteen, from the ten that I am giving them, and well, that. I guess, go ahead, Mark. I would say, um, if you ask me to reconsider what you think is my bad ruling, and you don't give me anything new to tell me why it was a bad ruling, I'm not going to reconsider it. Um, if you can't say, for example. I'm going to sentence you to X number of years in prison for burglary because the last 150 defendants that were in front of me for burglary had a combined exposure of, of why. You, every case stands on its own. So if they're unable to meet that burden, and we know that's very often the case, they buy all this debt, they don't have the contract. The original credit card was issued 30 years ago, right? They don't have it anymore. And so unless they're able to go back and get that, then they're stuck with whatever the governing, uh, probably much lower statutory amount might be, or they have to waive it and, and move on. If they can't meet that, um, that burden of proof for what the contract said, then you certainly can't award it. And if they ask you to, you can ask me to reconsider, of course, Maybe that's just what I said to my kids at breakfast this morning. You can ask me to reconsider all day long, but if if I don't have anything new, that doesn't change my mind. And um, you just simply issue your minute entry saying that no new information has been presented, and thus the motion to reconsider is denied for the you know same reasons. And off they come to us to ask us to change it again, and and likely with the same amount of success, but unless they can meet that burden, unless they're going to get the actual contract, sometimes I see them, um, then then they're stuck. Thank you both. I feel, uh, I feel reaffirmed and uh, will continue to do as I was doing. Thank you. All right. Anything and, else? Uh, at, this, at, at this point, um, we're scheduled for 90 minutes, and, and that's my bad because 
I thought originally we we're going to go two hours and then didn't think we had enough material for two hours. Uh, there's four cases that I've put um, attached to the materials uh, and we can finish in four minutes or we can perhaps go another 30 minutes and discuss those other cases. Uh, if we do the latter, then we need to take a five minute, at least a five minute break. What would everyone like to do? And I'll tell you, Charles, I can't see, it's very small, even what those cases are. And that wasn't uh, in my slideshow, that was just a, a, a new, so if you could blow that up, I'm not sure how much we would have to say about any of that in any event. The cases we provided. A, a Carta v. Partridge, Cavalry versus Arceo, Martinez versus ARC Rentals, and Midland versus Estrada. Okay. Abide the uh, will of the majority. <laughs> and we've had two people. Charles, while you're doing that, I, I have a question. This um, pro tem Judge Frankel, my question is, is as a rule, or not even a rule, but categorically, if I'm pro teming and I get, and they put in the queue, okay, a motion me, to let vacate. Keith, let me stop you there, because that's not the question. That's before everyone. The question is whether we're finishing in two minutes or continuing. Okay. So okay. Uh, I think by okay. your question, you're, you're, you're voting for continuing. So let's go ahead and take a five-minute recess, and we will come back then at 3.33. Okay, thank you. This conference will now yeah. be recorded. All right, and before we get going, uh, Judge Duberman, you turned on your camera earlier. Did you have a question or comment? And oh, here we go. No, I, I, I think Judge Williams went ahead and 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 uh, he's the one who asked about the the pretrial interest rate on the on the sale of the property, like the vehicles that are sold. So. And then he and I had a private conversation saying that we liked the the criteria that was given. So we'll talk about it. Later. All right, Judge Frankel. Yes. Um, basically, I, I want to pose it as a pro tem. Um, there'll be uh, cases in the queue um, if I'm signing judgments or, or looking in there. And there'll be a motion to vacate, a motion to reconsider, a motion to set aside. And, and, and I take the position that I can't sign any of those because I think it would be a vertical appeal. And, and I just am raising it. Is that the correct position that I'm pro teming, but that I really shouldn't or not, or any pro tem shouldn't sign anything regarding reconsiderations, motions to vacate, or things that uh, for decisions that were made by another judge. Well, I, I don't think it matters if it's a if, if you're a pro tem as opposed to full time, but I, I I think that as a matter of policy, it it makes sense that those that decisions to challenge and a ruling should be reviewed by the same judge that made the original ruling, a motion for reconsideration or a motion to vacate, whatever. I think, and that's how we do it here at the Superior Court. I think just as a matter of policy, I think. Um, to, to discourage forum shopping, judge shopping, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
I'm not aware of any specific rule that says that, but I, I think that it, it's it, it's good judicial policy. But there there may be some comments from people who disagree. So so what? Uh, let's see if there's any comments from the group. And, and I would say I was just pulling my rule book up, but couldn't get it to it quite as as quickly. Uh, rule 15 in the eviction actions. I think it's 141 in the justice court rules. And don't quote me on that. Um, you know, motion to set aside a default, you have to show particular reasons. And so my view would always be if I'm just pinch hitting, as we do in Superior Court all the time as well, I wouldn't know those reasons. And if somebody had missed court eight times and the trial court had reset the hearing and on the ninth time the trial court finally said, that's it, I'm defaulting. And then they file a motion to vacate the default and argue, well, I really, really tried to get there. I'm not sure I would feel comfortable that I was in a position to make that substantive ruling if my colleague had dealt with this case for however long they'd been dealing with it. So I think I, I would choose not to do that one. I would probably leave that in the inbox for when they got back. As much as we try to help one another not have uh, too large an inbox, those are the ones I would leave. And I will point out criminal rule 16.1D, uh, which does say a court may not reconsider an issue previously decided in the case except for good cause or as these rules provide otherwise. So a, uh, in a criminal case, if it's a motion to reconsider, you should not be considering that. Right, any other questions before we uh, talk about the cases that were distributed? Were there, right, any other so, comments about, were there any other comments about uh, Judge Frankel's uh, statement? Uh, well, Judge Huberman says that as the sitting judge, she does not believe that a pro tem should reconsider her opinions, particularly if they're going to overturn it. I mean, I, I, I think, and I, and I understand what you are saying from the point of of the Court of Appeals, it makes no difference to you if it's the sitting judge or the pro tem. I think that because this question came to us from a pro tem acting as a pro tem, I don't know that it's necessarily an appeals question. Um, and it, 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 as you said, maybe it has to do with policy, but I, I just think it has to do that these are judges that are invited to help us cover our calendars and they shouldn't be coming in wanted to substitute their judgment because they thought that the judge, you know, made a mistake and they were just going to go ahead and allow the reconsideration. That's just my, my opinion. Um, this is Liz on the phone. I have a question. Um, what happens when, say, there is a motion to vacate a judgment or reconsider, and at the same time, there's a notice of appeal? Who who retains or who has jurisdiction at at that point? Well, I think once the notice of appeal is filed, that the, the trial court loses jurisdiction, uh, assuming that it's not a, a partial judgment uh, under under Rule 139B. Assuming, uh, I think once a notice of appeal is final is filed and there is a signed judgment that's been entered, that the, the trial court loses jurisdiction at that point. Okay, thank you. And, and and I agree in part. However, I 
if there's something that was pending and didn't get ruled on by the time the notice of appeal was filed, then I would likely suggest that I don't have a final judgment because there is still something that was pending that should have been ruled on before it came up. So um, that's uh, how I would come down on that if it had already been been filed and somehow I, I I often get the minute entry that addresses the 15 motions that are pending, which is great and forgets about one. And if that is substantive in the ruling, for example, the counterclaim or whatever we've talked about earlier, um, then I would view that I didn't have the whole case yet, but it would have to be something like that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be that uh, they filed a notice of appeal and sort of got rid of the whatever was pending. But, but a case can't be proceeding along two separate tracks. It's so right. I, I, I think that if there is a signed judgment that's been entered and a party files, let's say, a motion for reconsideration and a notice of appeal, I think that the filing of the notice of appeal divests the trial court of jurisdiction. Uh, the, the case then is, is pending on appeal. It's possible it may be remanded to deal with a, whatever motion has been filed in the trial court. But I think that the once the, the notice of appeal is filed, if there's been a signed judgment, the case goes is is um, on appeal and and the trial court is divested of jurisdiction. Right. Uh, if if there is no signed judgment, if you just make a ruling and the and a party files a notice of appeal, as I said before, you don't have to stop what you're doing. A, a, a if there's no signed judgment, the notice of appeal is, as case law says, a nullity and and does not divest the trial court of jurisdiction. So probably has to do with more when it gets when the notice of appeal gets filed if it's contemporaneously with the new motion or if it's already in your queue somewhere and affects substantively the the judgment that may or may not have been ordered thank you All right, Judge uh, Kylie, I believe you're the one who identified the cases. Uh, is there one in particular you want to talk about or that any let, of let the let, let me uh, draw your attention to the case, the Accarta LLC versus Partridge. And, and have they been provided a copy of that? Yes. Yes, okay. Uh, this is a, a memorandum decision of the Court of Appeals, so it's not binding. But I, I, I do think that it's it's persuasive and it's something that's worth considering. Um, this in this case, the the plaintiff um, purchased accounts, credit card accounts, uh, from Chase Bank or that that originated with Chase Bank, and then they sued the uh, the defendant on the credit card account on the debt on the debt. And what the the Accarta v. Partridge case says is that what what the what the plaintiff needs to provide in support of the their claim is an affidavit from their custodian of records that the plaintiff well I'll, I'll just read it to you that it's the, the customary practice of the plaintiff to buy debts that have accrued on credit cards issued by federally regulated banks it incorporated this defendant's records into its business records and it relies on the records in the regular course of business so that's the, those are the, the the key 
things to look for in, in an affidavit from a, a plaintiff who essentially purchased accounts to file lawsuits that they, uh, it is their customary practice to acquire these debts. They um, incorporated the records into their own records and they rely on it in the regular course of business. So I, I think that that's uh, language to, to look for. That's essentially, uh, that, that's what's known as the adoptive business records doctrine what what count as business records when the plaintiff is not the company that originated the records the plaintiff didn't create the records they may not be able to come forward with evidence about how the records were created at the time but what they can say is we acquired these records we incorporated them into our records and we rely on them in conducting our business Any okay. questions or comments about that case? All right, Judge Kylie, did you want to talk about another? Um, well, uh, let me just talk more generally about the, the business records exception. The, the, there's sometimes a misconception that every document that's in a business's file must be a business record and therefore admissible. And, and that's, that's not so. Uh, the, the rationale for the business records exception is that businesses have a strong incentive to make sure that the records of their business activities are accurate. And so the records are admissible in evidence, even though they're hearsay, because they were created at a time and by a party that had a motive for act to make sure that they were accurate. So business records were, um, th their business records, if they're records of a particular transaction that are created for business purposes, and they were created before the, the dispute between the parties arose. So they were created before there was any motive for anybody to lie. The businesses, it was created at the time of the transaction when it was in the business's interest to be accurate. And the business records exception to the hearsay rule applies to information, not to documents. Um, I had a case one time where a, an ex, the exhibit that was being offered by the plaintiff, the landlord, was an invoice. And this was an invoice from a vendor. The, the vendor provided services at the house or whatever. The, the vendor routinely sent these invoices to, the, to this landlord. But on this particular invoice, the vendor hand wrote a message saying, by the way, your tenant is you know, up to no good and here's why. That, invoice was offered as a business record and admitted as a business record. But the question isn't, is this piece of paper a business record? It's, does the business record exception apply to the all of the information that's contained here? And the fact that this handwritten message was written on an invoice didn't make that handwritten message a business record. It, there was no showing that it was made for uh, business purposes, that it was made routinely by this vendor in the course of business. Uh, if the vendor had taken a blank sheet of paper and written that message out and sent it to the landlord, it, it certainly would have been hearsay and therefore not admissible at trial. And the fact that the piece of paper the vendor picked up happened to be an invoice doesn't make that message a business record. So uh, in, in that situation, the, the information, the business record exception applies to information that's been recorded not to particular documents. So the, there was no showing that the information that the vendor wrote by hand on this invoice 
was made for business purposes pursuant to a regular business practice, so it was not properly admitted. So that the, the, the question to consider when determining whether the business records exception applies is not is not whether this is a piece of paper that a business keeps in a file somewhere, but whether the information that's been recorded that is being offered was recorded for business reasons pursuant to a regular practice at the time of a business transaction. Any other comments about the uh, business records? This is the other Judge Williams. I don't know if my camera's working or not, but the I call this records custodian by proxy. I, I have a lot of heartburn um, with the adoptive records doctrine. Um, what in the one case a year that goes to trial on these consumer debt buyer cases, what we get is telephonic testimony from someone who says, no, I don't know how these records were prepared, but I see them all the time because I purchased them all the time and and I know what Visa card statements look like. Well, by that definition, I could be a records custodian for Visa card because I've seen them my entire adult life. So I've, I've seen Visa card statements. So it, it's, it's kind of hard. Um, the adoptive or, or the business records exception, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm wrong according to the Court of Appeals, but it, 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 in my opinion, it was for things like a ledger at a, an apartment complex where the people that are managing the office change every five or six months. You don't have to call everyone who made an entry into the ledger to admit the ledger. You can just call the last person and say, I don't know about the prior ledgers, but I know that this is how the business records are made. They're made contemporaneous with the tenant making, you know, payments and us billing the tenant. And I made the last three entries. That's my impression of the business record exception. When we get to these debt buyer cases, we get people who have no idea how these records were created, but yet I think they come sailing into evidence as a business records exception because of the adopted records doctrine. And it's it's sometimes a problem. And again, a lot of these cases are defaults or or summary judgment motions where don't we don't really have necessarily a strong response coming from the other side. I appreciate uh, the, the comment. The the traditional business records analysis focuses on how the record was created how and when and by whom, but you're right, the adoptive business records exception re relates to the, um, the person who acquires the record and, and it requires them to say that we, we acquired the record, we um, incorporated it into our records and this is what we rely on. Um, now, I, I, think, I think that the adoptive business, business records exception began when to, to address the situation where one bank acquires another bank. And so they, they take the, the originating bank's records, incorporate it into their records and continue banking using that information. I think that's how it originated. Shanto, However, get out of here. No, you cannot do that. However, I think that um, the Court of Appeals in the Acarta case uh, 
has indicated that it, it is willing to apply the adopted business records to the debt buyer cases as well. I, I, I understand the concerns that you have about whether that's a good fit in the purpose of the adoptive business records exception, but Court of Appeals seems satisfied with it. And I think that also goes back to the question that was asked earlier about whether it comes in as a record or not, it doesn't change the burden of proof. So if you don't have someone who can show you the contract or can show you the debt or can establish whatever it is, um, they don't get to just say, well, we're pretty sure you owed this and our records somewhere say so. You, you still have to have someone able to testify about the facts of, of your particular case. And I, if you don't mind, I do know you mentioned something about summary judgment, and that's one thing I didn't have on one of the slides. But um, bearing in mind that the determination of a summary judgment motion is no question of no material question of fact or law. So those are, should, I think, appropriately be granted in very, very limited cases. So, and I see a lot of them granted. And um, if there's, if something is going to require testimony or you have a question of fact, I'm not sure you still may not get past what the Court of Appeals thinks the record is, but, but it, at summary judgment, if there's a question, a, a legitimate question, then maybe that case is not appropriate for summary judgment. And just bear that in mind, but also just generally, I, we do get appeals where I see questions of fact all over the record. Maybe they're, maybe they're ones that you've resolved in your head, but if the question is presented, then that case is not appropriate for summary judgment. Then those people need to be able to have the opportunity to bring in whatever those witnesses are and present that. That's a little I mean, aside, but you mentioned summary judgments and, and I, I do know we have quite a few of those appeals from summary judgment motions where I read the transcript and the lawyer says, oh yeah, well, we disagree about that. That's a question of fact. But again, you if, if it's a, a trial, as Judge Williams was, was uh, discussing, you certainly uh, can decide what weight to give to the evidence that's been offered. Uh, even if it's admissible, you, you still consider the weight to be given to it. And in, in deciding what the weight to be given to it is, you can certainly take into account the, um, the testimony that's offered in support of it and, and whether this person who's testifying on behalf of the company can satisfy you of, of the, uh, that the records are something that you should rely on. Were there other cases or anything else? I think we we extended to two hours and now we're fairly close to that two hours as well. There, there's, uh, it, there is one other thing I wanted to, to discuss and it was the, it's the Martinez versus ARC Reynolds case uh, is where it came up. But if, if the trial court is considering a motion at the close of the, after the plaintiff rests at trial, uh, is considering a motion for a directed verdict or a motion for judgment as a matter of law. I think the directed verdict is more um, sort of old fashioned language, but in any case, um, the, 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 the test is whether everything, whether if the plaintiff's evidence were accepted as true, it could, it could entitle the plaintiff to a judgment in his favor, in its favor. 
So the, the question when the, when the plaintiff rests, the question isn't, you as the trial judge are not sitting as the trier of fact at that time. And the question isn't, do I believe the plaintiff's witnesses? How much weight do I think their testimony is worth? The question is, if their testimony were true, if there were a jury here and the jury believed them, would, would the plaintiffs or could the plaintiff be entitled to, to judgment? And if the evidence that the plaintiff presents is sufficient, that they could be entitled to win if the, if the evidence were accepted as true, then the motion for a directed verdict or judgment as a matter of law must be denied. But when you're considering a motion for a directed verdict, whether there's a jury or not in your case, you should approach the, the, the uh, motion for a directed verdict with the idea that I'm not the trier of fact at this point in the case. At the end of the trial, I may be the trier of fact if there's no jury. But right now, I'm just deciding, is the, is the evidence legally sufficient? In other words, accepting the plaintiff's evidence as true, could the plaintiff win? If the plaintiff's evidence, if true, is enough to entitle the plaintiff to, uh, could be enough to entitle the plaintiff to, to a verdict in its favor, then the motion for a directed verdict um, must be denied. All right, what, what else would people like to talk about? Are there any other comments in the chat? No. Okay. Except but thank you. And thank you all. I appreciate very much being able to come and talk. I, I would like to say to you, and maybe someday we'll be in person and can do that because it does feel a little bit more at you and I can't see everyone, but I know you're out there and I hope that the information that we conveyed was helpful and that if you have any questions, you will pass them along and they will make their way to us and get answered if appropriate to do so. So thank you all very much. And if you're at the judicial conference next month, please come up and say hi. I'd love to, to uh, meet you and get a chance to meet you in person. We will be there. And now that you've seen us, although we haven't seen most of you, um, I know, I don't know what Judge Kylie has signed up for, but I will be in many of those uh, LCA breakout type sessions. So please come and say hello. And you don't have to say, I'm the guy that you ruled against last week. You could just say hello. <laughs> but you can say, I'm the guy I ruled, you ruled against last week too, if you want to. And, and I do want to thank Judge Kiley and Commissioner Lefebvre. Thank you very much for uh, giving your time to us and uh, hoping, uh, hopefully have, uh, have cleared up several issues for us. We get everyone on the same page. This will be uh, put on uh, YouTube and as a podcast. Uh, so it is going to be available. I'm, I'll send out the updated uh, certificate, uh, COJET certificate and the materials will be available on Hightail. Does anyone have anything else? All right, have a good day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you all, take Thank care. You.